thought you were going to take away my notes then, Dad. No, no. I'm not, I'm not like David. I can't do it uh, completely. Off, I, have to, I have to look at my notes. Uh, good morning, everyone. It's, it's great to be with you this morning. Um, if you just put my PowerPoint on, is that okay, guys? Thank you. Uh, so last week, David shared with us what we believe God's saying to us as a church in 2024. Uh, he's asking us as a church to stand in the gap. And that phrase, it comes from Ezekiel 22.30. It's this verse. I looked for someone who might rebuild the walls of righteousness that guards the land. I searched for someone to stand in the gap in the wall so I wouldn't have to destroy the land, but I found no one. And if you're anything like me, uh, I'm a visual kind of person. So when I see a verse like this, I I picture it. And uh, the the picture that would have come uh, from this verse is probably like a big city wall with a hole in the middle. Um, And historically, historic cities have walls surrounding them. Anyone been to York? York. So, so you can walk around the city walls in York, and they were initially built by the, first by the Romans, and then they were built upon by the Anglo-Saxons, the Vikings, and the Normans, and that's as much history as you're going to get from me today. And, um, but the purpose of those city walls was protection. It was protection for the city. Um, so um, if there was a hole in a wall that was there as a shield to protect you would be vulnerable for an enemy to come and attack it. So if like there was a wall, a hole in the wall, that would be the point where the enemies would come in to get through that hole, to get into the city and ultimately destroy it. And um, what would happen at that moment, um, until that wall could be repaired, the soldiers of the city would be asked to stand in that hole to guard it to ensure that nothing gets through. And that's the point of it. Until it's repaired, someone stands so nothing gets through. And that's the picture that comes when we talk about standing in the gap. But God's not talking about a physical wall when he talks about this. He is talking about a spiritual wall. He's talking about a wall of righteousness. He's saying to Israel, there needs to, you, who are the righteous people in this land? Who are the people who are going to point to God? Israel's purpose was to be a light to the nations. And yet David went into great detail last week about all the awful things that were going on. And God's response, his first response is to search to restore. That's his first response. His reaction was to just find one person who would stand in that gap so he wouldn't have to destroy it. And we believe as a church that God is calling us to stand in the gap for the world around us, our own personal worlds. And that sounds amazing. It's a great buzz line. And everyone's going to go, well, what does that mean? And the reality is we don't know yet. And we have some ideas. But what we want to do is that actually... We want to hear what God is saying to us because we believe that God is saying for us as a church to stand in the gap. And the reason why we believe that is because we are convinced that his heart is that no one should perish, that all creation should be restored back to him and that he asks his church to partner with him 
to bring that reconciliation. We believe that that is God's heart for us here. And when you hear stuff like that, if you're anything like me, a pragmatic kind of person, you'd be like, well, how do we do this stuff? And the point is, is that that's not where we're going to go with this at the moment. What we're going to do is we're going to look at this biblically. What it biblically means to stand in the gap. Because what we want to do is we want God to move in our hearts in this area. Um, And I personally believe that the longer we wrestle with this, the longer we seek his face, um, the longer lasting effect this will have in our personal lives, in our church life, and in the world and and the community around us. So what we're going to be doing over the next few weeks is we're going to be looking at different Bible characters who showed what it was, what it looked like to stand in the gap. And today I'm looking at Elisha. And that's Elisha, not Elijah. And if I get mixed up halfway through, have grace on me. It's Elisha. Okay. I practiced that with Rachel last night and I got so tongue-tied it was untrue. Um, but who, who was Elisha? Well, Elisha was a prophet around 180, 50 years before Jesus. And he was a prophet in a time when Israel was split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And the reason why they were split is because of their sin. They had turned away from God. And the purpose of the prophets was to communicate God's message, predominantly to Israel, but actually also to the rest of the world in many times as well. And and their messages revolved around a call for people to return to God. It was to display God's heart. In other words, they were standing in the gap for God and people. And Elisha was called to be Elijah's successor in 1 Kings 19. And we see the start of Elisha's ministry in 2 Kings 2. And we're going to read this passage. So I've got it on the screen. It's a fantastic succession story. If you can put the next slide on, that's great. Apologies, it's very busy, but I'll try and read it through. So I'm going to start from verse 7 of chapter 2 into verse 15. 50 men from the group of prophets also went and watched from a distance as Elijah and Elisha stopped beside the Jordan River. And then Elijah folded his cloak together and struck the water with it. The river divided and the two of them went across on dry ground. And when they came to the other side, Elijah said to Elisha, tell me what I can do for you before I am taken away. Elisha replied, please let me inherit a double share of your spirit and become your successor. You've asked a difficult thing, Elijah replied. If you see me when I'm taken from you, then you will get your request. But if not, then you won't. And as they were walking and talking, suddenly a chariot of fire appeared, drawn by horses of fire. It drove between the two men, separating them, and Elijah was carried by a whirlwind into heaven. Elisha saw it and cried out, My father, my father, I see the chariots and the charioteers of Israel. And as they disappeared from sight, Elisha tore his clothes in distress. Elisha picked up Elijah's cloak, which had fallen when he was taken up. And then Elisha returned to the bank of the Jordan River. He struck the water with Elijah's cloak and he cried out, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And then the river divided and Elisha went across. 
And when the group of prophets from Jericho saw from a distance what had happened, they exclaimed, Elijah's spirit rests upon Elisha. And they went to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. Now, that is quite a passage, if you ask me. It's an amazing story. Um, You know, when we talk about succession stories, this is up there with the more dramatic succession stories. Last year, we had a succession story of our own at church. Dad um, passed on the baton from leading the church for 40 years to us as a team. And uh, we, we felt that we needed to mark that occasion. And we had a celebration service for what God had done through Dad and the, uh, in this church for the past 40 years. And Dad was worried that that was too much of a fuss. Well, there was no whirlwind. He wasn't taken up. Um, we did not signal the start of our leadership by parting the River Irwell down in, in Little Lever. It wasn't anything like that whatsoever. This is a succession story full of drama. And what I find incredibly significant about this story is Elisha asking Elijah for a double share of his spirit. Now, on the surface, that can sound quite a cocky thing to say, I want a double share of your spirit. It it can almost sound like I want to be twice as powerful as you. I want to be twice as anointed. I want to have a ministry that's twice as large as you. It can come across incredibly cocky if you read it at surface level. But it's not that at all. What it actually is, is that Elisha knew the gap that would be created, that when the great prophet Elijah who'd openly confronted and exposed idolatry, who'd created an atmosphere where people could freely come and worship God, when he would leave this earth, there would be such a gap there. It would leave a big gap. And Elisha knew that if he was the one who was supposed to stand in that gap and to carry on, he's going to need a double portion of Elijah's blessing because he's going to need a double spirit portion of courage He's going to need a double portion of faithfulness, a double portion of faith in God, and a double portion of obedience to God to continue this work. Elijah's Elisha's request was wanting to see God's kingdom come. It was about wanting God to get the glory. It was about wanting God to move in his people on earth through him. And I just felt as we started looking at what it means to stand in the gap, one of the big starting points that we need to remember here is if we are going to stand in a gap, we need to have that same mindset as Elisha, that same selfless heart that this is way bigger than us. And if we are limiting what we see to something that we can do, it's not of God. Because actually what that is, is is just us doing something in our own strength. What it is, is actually understanding that what you are asking to do, Lord, is far beyond our capability. And therefore, we have to look to you. We need a filling of your Holy Spirit continually to empower us and to equip us. So it's you who gets the glory. So people don't look at us and go, oh, wow, that's amazing. They look at him and they point at him. And because that was Elisha's heart, because he was selfless, God gives him that double portion. And I love this picture of how he 
signals his succession. He firstly picks up Elijah's cloak. And that is, that is symbolic. That is to say, I am taking up that mantle. That is a symbolic thing that he picks up the cloak. But then what he does is he parts the Jordan River and walks through it. And I just want you to think about that. He splits the sea as we sung this morning, creates a gap, and then he stands in that gap. He physically shows he's going to stand in that gap. And if we just put the next slide on, and what I love, there's a picture of it there. I didn't draw it myself, but um, there's a picture there of Elisha standing in that gap between the Jordan River. But what I love is that where Elijah standing in the gap meant he was going to confront evil. This double portion on Elisha meant that him standing in the gap was going to express itself through meeting people, through miracles, meeting people in their place of need. And the next few chapters of Two Kings are unbelievable. They're like, I, I encourage you this week to read Two Kings 2 to 6. Carry on if you want, by all means. But what I mean is, is that those few chapters, it's like miracle after miracle after miracle. I'm just going to go through them. Uh, firstly, um, I'm gonna, there are other ones in there, but these are the ones I'm focusing on. In 2 Kings 2, 19 to 22, Elisha, he purifies the water in the town of Jericho so that it no longer causes death or barrenness for the residents. In 2 Kings 3, 15 to 20, he prophesies to Israel and Judah in the midst of a battle that God will fill a dry valley with water so they can drink, so their animals can drink, and it empowers them to win the battle. In 2 Kings 4, verses 1 to 8, he multiplies the oil, an oil for a widow who was in debt. And he multiplies this oil so that um, she can use, sell the oil to provide for her family and pay off her debts. In 2 Kings 4, 8 to 30, he prophesies to a woman that she's going to have a child from Schumann. She has a child if you, the child sadly passes away, and yet Elisha raises the child from the dead. In the midst of a famine in Gilgal, um, some of the Israelites, they eat poisonous stew because they're hungry. And he purifies that poisonous stew so it doesn't cause them harm. In the midst of a famine, he feeds a hundred people with 12 barley loaves and a sack of fresh grain. He heals Naaman, an army commander of Aram. He heals him of leprosy by telling him to wash himself seven times in the Jordan River. And he brings a lost axe head out of the water and floats it back. Now, these stories are pretty amazing, um, but what I love about them is that they're everyday circumstances that God meets people in. And this is what I want to get today at, is that the miracles provided food to people in the midst of when they were hungry. The miracles provided water to them in the midst of drought. He doesn't miraculous, just miraculously provide money. He gives sustainable ways for them to continue the income. 
Uh, it's not just that he spectacularly raises people from the dead, but he actually cares about the seemingly insignificant, like lost heads of axes. The double portion in Elisha reveals the compassionate heart of God. The compassionate heart of God. And these compassionate acts lead Naaman, who's a Gentile, to declare this in 2 Kings 5.15. Now I know that there is no God in all the world except Israel. We need compassion. Compassion is the key driving force to standing in the gap. We need God to fill us with his compassion. And I just want to unpack what compassion is. Um, compassion comes in the place of suffering. It's a, it's a response to suffering predominantly. And there are three main responses. There are three levels of action when someone's suffering. The first one is sympathy. And sympathy is that understanding that someone's struggling and you're sensitive to that. So it's that I know this person's going through a hard time. I'm going to let her know I'm thinking of them. I'm not going to put too much on them. It's understanding they're struggling. The next level is empathy. Empathy is, is more than sympathy. You actually physically and emotionally feel the pain that someone else is going through. It leads to a greater understanding of their suffering because you're feeling that pain. It's like a gut punch inside you. Now, both of those things, sympathy and empathy, are great things. And when we are struggling, I really appreciate it when someone empathizes or sympathizes with me. But compassion is the highest level, and it's a godly characteristic. And compassion, if you just put the next slide on possibly, the part of compassion originates from the Latin word compassionis. And it literally means to suffer with. See, it goes further than just understanding someone's pain. And it even goes further than feeling the pain. It actually means I'm going to relieve the suffering that you're feeling by suffering with you. And one example that always comes to mind when I think of practical compassion is I remember watching a story of a man from Ohio who he had grown his dreadlocks for 20 years. I mean, I don't know, goodness knows about the shampoo aspects of it, but, you know, like, grown his, dread, grown his dreadlocks for 20 years down here. And his son sadly contracted cancer and uh, lost his hair due to chemotherapy and was really, really wary of it. And to stand in solidarity, the man from Ohio shaved off his dreadlocks of 20 years to say, I'm going to stand with you, son, so that you're not on your own. That's a practical display of compassion. Compassion is not just a feeling. Compassion is an action. It begins with that brokenness between a gap of how something how God designed it to be and the situation that we're in now, but it doesn't stay there. It leads us to do something. The brokenness of the pain of something, the injustice of something, the suffering of something leads us to do something. It costs us. Compassion costs us. 
And I believe genuinely, I genuinely believe we are already a compassionate church. But I think God wants to pour out a deeper level of compassion in us. I want, I think that he wants us in this season to allow him to move beyond an understanding of what breaks his heart, even beyond a feeling of what breaks his heart, but actually he wants to break our hearts for the things that are breaking his so that it would move us into action and that we would stand in the gap. And I, I recognise that that is an incredibly scary thought. I recognise that I'm not a very good salesman and that I'm not like glossing over things here. But I think that this is what God's heart is. Um, it's scary. When you think of gaps, these painful gaps, gaps are usually quite dark. Gaps represent the unknown. Gaps can signal potential danger. And when we shared with Lynn Swart about how we feel God is calling us to stand in the gaps, she made this really insightful point that actually, when you talk about gaps, this is what society tells us to do. It tells us to mind a gap. Because it's a lot safer to mind a gap. And in many ways, it would be much easier for us as a church to mind a gap. It would be much easier for us to just carry on with everything that we're going on and doing. God's done some amazing things in here. It's not that what's been happening previously is wrong. God's, we've always followed God's heart as a church. But I do believe that if we're to follow God's heart as a church in this season, we have to stand in the gap rather than mind it. We have to press into some of the more painful issues. Um, and he wants to pour out his compassion on us in this. And this is risky. It's not very strategic. There's no seven-point plan of where it's going to lead. It's uncomfortable. It's countercultural, but it's what God did through Jesus. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. The pain at the state of the world led God to give Jesus. He saw the world was broken and he stood in the gap. Just as Elijah preempted John the Baptist as a voice in the wilderness, I believe that Elisha preempts Jesus through performing miracles driven by compassion that restored people to wholeness. Look at these miracles. Elisha purifies and provides water so Israel doesn't thirst. Whoever drinks of the water that Jesus gives will never thirst for anything again, but bin them become a spring of water welling up of eternal life. Elisha feeds a hundred people with 12 barley loaves and grain, Jesus feeds 5,000 people with five loaves and two fishes. But even more significantly, people can find true satisfaction and fulfillment in life by relying on him because he's the bread of life. Elisha raises a boy from the dead. Jesus raised children from the dead. He raised Lazarus from the dead. But more significantly, he himself was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father so that we can come alive. 
so that we can find new life, so that there is a way from death to life, from brokenness to wholeness. Jesus stands in the gap. Elisha heals Naaman from leprosy, and it points to this story of Jesus. Next slide. This is what a man with leprosy came and knelt in front of Jesus, begging to be healed. If you are willing, you can heal me and make me clean, he said. Move with compassion, or the NIV will say anger. Jesus reached out and touched him. I am willing, he said. Be healed. Instantly, the leprosy disappeared and the man was healed. I love this passage so much. Because I think that that leper um, does what many of us do in our points of doubt. When it feels hopeless, when it feels like we have been waiting forever to bridge the gap between what God has promised and what our current situation is, and there is this massive gap and we think, what is going on? I am honest to say in my moments of darkness and doubt, I have said, are you actually willing, Lord? And I think, humanly speaking, we all do it at some level. And look at Jesus' response. It says he was moved with compassion or anger. And the reason why those words um, twist is because it's... Um, they're not sure about the translation, what word it means to come out. And in a lot of ways, compassion and anger, they actually seem very contrary, but I actually think they perfectly complement each other when we look at God's heart. Because um, his anger at the state of his creation that he loves moves him to action, moves him to compassion. The anger at the injustice, the sickness and the pain around us caused by sin leads him to be moved how could God not be willing look at what Jesus does he touches him you know the laws in Leviticus they teach that Jews not to come in contact with people with skin diseases because they'd come contaminated stay away stay away stay away yet Jesus perfect holy blameless completely clean touches the dirty man. Jesus risks himself, making himself unclean to save that man. That's compassion. Jesus hates sin, but let's never mistake that for a lack of compassion, please. Let's never do that. He hates what goes on, but he reaches in. He reaches in. And if we, if we move away from a theology of that, I think we're on dangerous ground, I've got to be honest. I really think that. I am under no illusion that God is broken at the state of the world, but he doesn't turn away from it. It's not so much a gap between the world and God, it's this great big mighty chasm. It's absolutely massive but he doesn't turn away from it. What he actually does, he stands right in the middle of it because his heart's that no one perishes. And you think, what do you mean he stands in the middle of it? The sinless God who's righteously angry at the sin of the world chooses to become the very thing he hates, sin, and takes it upon himself on the cross 
to satisfy that righteous anger so that we can become righteous. That is standing in the gap. He takes the very thing that he hates, becomes it, places it on upon himself so that we can be free. That is standing in the gap, but it takes upon the sin of the world. His heart is that no one will perish. He suffers for the creation he loves. He's broken at the evil and the suffering that has happened, that is happening at this moment and that will happen in the future. And it leads into action. His compassion leads to standing in the gap. And if that word compassion means to suffer with, the word passion means to suffer for. And I, I think this is a really difficult thing to say, but I am going to finish with this bit, is that I feel that God's wanting us to be bold in this season and to reflect his heart by standing in the gap for the things that we suffer with, the very most painful things in our life. I want to ask this question, and it's challenging. What if the things that have caused us the most pain in our life, what if the things that leave the biggest scars in our lives the things that scare us most, and if we're honest, the things that we'd much prefer to mind a gap are the things that God's actually asking us to stand in. Not so that we can be superheroes, but that he can meet us in that place, stand with us and pour out his compassion on us. And that may feel like an absolute gut punch to hear because there are some very deep and painful gaps. But I want to assure you to trust God in this. Because I'm going to be vulnerable here as I finish, but I'm saying this to hopefully encourage you. The biggest scars in my life, the absolute biggest scars without a shadow of a doubt, are left by people, particularly men, who I've known who have taken their own lives. Um, I've seen the trauma that that causes other people. And I've experienced the trauma myself that it causes. That gap between how God designed life to be with him in all its fullness and the tragedy that someone feels that they cannot continue terrifies me. I'm being totally honest. That, is the, for me personally, is the most painful gap there is. Now, it's different for different people, but I'm just being honest. And yet over four years ago, God poured out his compassion on me and spoke to Rachel and myself about setting up King's Community to help young people with their mental health. For us to be like an Elisha and stand in the gap to pour out compassion on other people, if you like, and to restore their hearts so they know freedom. But this is what I'm getting at. This is why he asked us to stand in the gap is because he met us in that painful gap. We couldn't stand in that gap by ourselves. Delusion. He met us in that painful gap. We've experienced firsthand the painful gap of suicide, but we've experienced God's compassion meeting us in that place. And that's why we do what we do now. And the issue is still scary to me to this day. I go into a classroom not knowing what traumatic story I'm going to hear today. 
But this is what God's taught me recently, if you just put the last slide on. When God asks us to stand in a gap for children's mental health, and it's whatever it may be, so those issues that you think, what is it you're actually saying to me, those most painful issues, that first picture of the man standing in the wall is how I've mistaken what standing in the gap looks like. And if you imagine that's me, it feels like the pressure's all on me. That I stand in that place, that I have to be the one who goes in, carries the burden, fills it so nobody else falls in, do the saving, all the rest of it. I'm not saying this is my mentality, but I think subconsciously I've thought this and I've carried that burden at times. That is never God's intention. Because the gap is not some narrow little gap that my pea-sized body can fill. The gap is far too wide. The gap is far too wide. And actually, what he's just asking us to do is just to be obedient and trust him and stand. You don't fill that gap. I don't fill that gap. He fills the gap. He fills the gap. He just asks us to partner with him. He fills the gap. And that's amazing because it means that he saves. It means that we carry his heart. It means that he carries our burdens. It's a different mentality. And so what we're saying when we talk about standing in the gap is it's trusting him in the most painful things. And we don't know where it's going to lead. And what I am not saying is it's going to lead us to do things. Because actually, I think what he wants to do is to break our hearts once again. The things that break us so much. I just think he wants to just give us a glimpse into how he sees it. Give us a glimpse into how he sees it. I think that's what he wants to do. And that is scary. But all he wants is our trust. Because as we take that step, he's there. He's filling the space. That's far more pressure trying to cope on your own. And that's my default, by the way. But he's there. He takes us into a wide open space. So what I want us to do is I want us to do a really brave thing. And I want us to stand, if that's okay. And there might be things that you're just mulling over. There might be things that have you're not sure of. There may be things that you need to pray further about. But what I felt that God wanted to do was pour out his compassion on us. Especially in the gaps of our lives. The things that are most painful, the things that are... Maybe we've become hard-hearted as a protection. Because we're too scared, understandably, to open up of what scars will come from it. But I want to say that they are the very things that God is wanting to pour out in your life. And I think that they're the starting point when it comes to talking about standing in the gap. This is going to be a deep-rooted work that God's going to do in this church over a long period of time. It's not just going to be a one-week thing or a one-year thing. This is going to change a lot of our mentality. But it's a new season that I think God's wanting to do something in.
So, Father, would you... There are things in our lives that you know we struggle with, the most painful things that we want to naturally lock away. Because we're kind of scared what will happen if we open it up. But ultimately what that does is leave a gap between us and you. And you're inviting us to trust you, to go and stand in that gap and to open up our hearts to you. And I want to thank you that you're there. You're wanting to birth something new in us, to pour out your compassion on us. The very things that are breaking our hearts, you want to reveal to us how you see them. Your compassion. You want to pour out your compassion on us. We're just going to wait. Tear down our own walls, Lord God. Our own defense mechanisms. Meet us in the plain, painful place, Lord. Pour out your compassion on us. He sees it all. He sees it all. He's right there with you. He never leaves. His heart breaks with you. I just encourage you over the next few days to not let this pass by, but to continue to ask God to pour out his compassion on these areas. Um, he wants to do heart surgery, I believe that. But I can't get the words out of that song that he split the sea so we could walk right through. 
He's wanting to do this to create a free pathway to you to stand into. Fill us again, Holy Spirit. We need you. Amen.